Welcome to this month's special programming series, Focus on Cancer, on ReachMD XM157. Thyroid cancer has traditionally been difficult to accurately diagnose and to redetect in the case of a recurrence. Why is it so difficult to diagnose and have we made further progress in the ability to better identify the markers of thyroid cancer? You are listening to a special future medicine segment on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, professor of surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. Alan Zipperstein, vice chair of the division of surgery and head of the section of endocrine surgery, as well as director of the general surgical residency program at the Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Sipperstein is well-published in a number of specialty areas, including thyroid, parathyroid, advanced laparoscopic surgery, thermal ablation, and endocrine tumors. Welcome, Dr. Sipperstein. Thank you very much. Today we are discussing the detection of thyroid cancer. Dr. Sipperstein, how do we detect thyroid cancer? Well, thyroid nodules are very common. Typically, they are picked up by the patient who notices a new lump in the lower midline of the neck or picked up on routine physical examination. With increasing imaging for other reasons, for example, carotid duplex studies, CT scans of the chest, a lot of what are termed incidental thyroid lesions are picked up. How do you determine if one of these nodules is cancer? Well, the algorithm for workup, the first study to obtain is a neck ultrasound. And this will tell you if the lesion is solid or cystic, it'll tell you its precise size, and it'll tell you if there are one or multiple lesions, or if there also involved lymph nodes in the neck. Once that's obtained, the next test of choice is to get a fine needle aspiration, usually performed under ultrasound guidance. If the fine needle aspiration shows a malignancy, do you proceed straight away to surgical intervention? Yes. And it depends in some ways on what the details of what the fine needle aspiration shows. And I just want to preface this by saying that it really requires a good thyroid cytologist. Many centers may only see a few of these slides per year. Fortunately, we have the U.S. Postal Service, and they could be sent to centers who read these frequently. So number one, you have to really know and rely on your cytologist. If a qualified cytologist tells you that it is a papillary thyroid cancer, the most common thyroid cancer, they are going to be correct at least 99% of the time so we can proceed directly to surgery without the need for any other diagnostic testing. And follicular? That is a middle category that is difficult to determine. What the cytologist will tell you is that there are many thyroid cells. They're often arranged in follicles or small clusters. There's usually a paucity of colloid material. And the best diagnosis that they can tell you is that this is either a hypercellular colloid nodule, that is a hyperplastic lesion that has more cells than colloid, that is one of the three options, or they can tell you that it is a follicular neoplasm in that it is either a follicular adenoma or follicular carcinoma. The difficulty with those last two is that the cells look identical under the microscope, and the only way to distinguish an adenoma from a carcinoma is to resect the specimen, do serial sections through the capsule, and see if there are any areas of capsular or vascular invasion. And those are the only subtle determinants of a benign versus a cancerous lesion. 
And because the entire capsule needs to be serially sectioned, unfortunately, frozen section in the operating room will not give us our answer. So no matter how good the cytopathologist is, if we get follicular cells on the cytologic examination, we've got to get more tissue. Yes, if we see what they call what the term is atypical follicular cells or a follicular neoplasm, sometimes the term suspicious is used and you have to understand what terminology your cytologist used. It's not a limitation of the cytology, it's a limitation of the biology of what we're dealing with. And why is cytologic interpretation so difficult? It depends on the experience of the cytologist. They're looking at some very subtle nuclear features. If you're in a center that is reading many of these every day, then obviously you gain a high degree of expertise. If you're only looking at these occasionally, it can actually be quite challenging. If you have just joined us, you are listening to a special future medicine segment on ReachMD XM157. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, professor of surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. Alan Sipperstein, vice chair of the Division of Surgery and head of endocrine surgery at the Cleveland Clinic. Today we are discussing the detection of thyroid cancer. Dr. Sipperstein, what's new and what's being done in the research field with thyroid cancer? There's a lot of work being done on oncogene profiling within thyroid specimens. What is that? It's simply looking at the cells and determining what oncogenes are present. And it's done both for diagnostic as well as prognosis. And this is a field that is not yet mature and we are not yet able to do oncogene profiling and make a clear determination of either aggressiveness or diagnosis but we may be there at some point in the future. Well, where do you think it's going? I think much pathology is going to evolve from simply looking at cells under the microscope to really understanding the molecular biology of what's in there and using that to supplement what the pathologist sees under the microscope. And in particular, as we were just discussing, trying to distinguish a follicular adenoma from a follicular carcinoma, that would be very promising. We're currently doing studies, and we have yet to complete our results, to see if we can distinguish those two entities on using molecular profiling just by doing a fine needle aspiration. And what this would mean for the patient is that some patients could be spared surgery, some would only need a lobe, or some, if they have cancer, would require a total thyroidectomy. Now, in the patient that does have a malignancy, is surgical intervention the only way to go? That is the initial treatment for essentially all patients with a thyroid cancer. It is essential to perform a total thyroidectomy, depending on the type, either do a prophylactic lymph node dissection for the more aggressive, for example, medullary cancers, or doing a therapeutic dissection, for example, in papillary or follicular cancer, if they're clinically involved nodes. That's the mainstay of initial treatment, is to try to surgically resect the disease. Now, perhaps the audience who was listening to you speak before about radiofrequency ablation for metastatic liver malignancies, is this something, or in any shape or form, can be used for the thyroid? For the treatment of primary thyroid cancers, the answer would be no. And the reason is that the entire thyroid, particularly the normal surrounding tissue, needs to be removed so that the next important step in treatment, that is radioiodine ablation, can be performed. So if there's normal thyroid tissue still in place, it will take up the radioiodine, 
much more avidly than even the tumor does and limit the efficacy of that therapy. Is there something related to minimally invasive thyroid surgery as compared to our traditional thyroidectomy? Well, this is some interesting terminology in a particular bandwagon of, of mine and that we have to be very careful when we're using marketing terms and when we're using terms that really are talking about changing the outcome in a given patient. What do you mean by that? Even traditional thyroid surgery, if it's done through a relatively large incision, it has relatively low risks. The patients can very often go home the next day. There's minimal post-operative discomfort. Most experienced thyroid surgeons are using a much smaller incision than was traditionally done. It's cosmetically more appealing, but still the patients are going home the next day with the need for minimal, if any, pain medication. The important thing, however, is to have an appropriate cancer operation and not compromise the quality of a cancer operation for cosmetics. Even so, we're often doing fairly extensive thyroid surgeries and even lymph node dissections through very small incisions. And what are your thoughts on that? Again, I think it depends on the experience of the clinician. If someone has a practice that focuses in endocrine surgery such as mine and you feel very comfortable with the technique and can be performed safely, there may be some advantages to that, particularly from a cosmetic point of view. And what about parathyroid disease? Parathyroid disease is very common. It affects one out of 500 women and about one out of 1,500 men. It is a greatly underdiagnosed condition. We are seeing a huge number of patients with osteoporosis with minimal elevations in their calcium values who are recognized today who would have been ignored in past years. And what's new in parathyroid surgery that you're doing? The biggest issue today in parathyroid surgery is the extent of exploration that is required. Traditionally, all four parathyroid glands were explored. Today, there is a great impetus to do what's called a focused exploration, where only a single gland identified by preoperative localizing studies is explored. In most places, then intraoperative parathyroid hormone measurement is performed to see if it drops appropriately in the operating room. And if so, the procedure is terminated with a single gland being explored. This has been an area of great academic interest for us because our impression is that we see a lot of patients who have more than one parathyroid gland involved. You'll find textbooks that say 90 plus percent of patients have only one gland involved. Our experience is that it's 70 percent and about 15 percent of patients have double adenomas and 15 percent have hyperplasia. And were you led to that based on your intraoperative parathormone assays? Well, it's interesting how the question is how accurate are the intraoperative parathyroid hormone measurements. You'll see a paper in a journal saying that it is 98% reliable at detecting single gland disease, and the next article in the journal will say that it is notoriously unreliable for patients with multiple gland disease. So I think this is an area where we have been very active in doing studies to try to sort out this question. And I can tell you what we've done. In our patients, we traditionally have believed in foregland exploration. So based on localizing studies, of course, we remove what we suspect is the offending gland initially. We draw our intraoperative parathyroid hormone measurements, but regardless, go ahead and explore the other glands. And it turns out in the best possible case, if a patient has both a nuclear medicine Sestamibi scan and a neck ultrasound, 
and both of those light up a single gland. So this is a best possible case scenario. And we explore the patient, take out a parathyroid, the intraoperative parathyroid hormone drops appropriately, so most people would stop the operation at that point. If we continue to explore, we find that 15% of patients will have an additional abnormal gland. The question is, would that gland result in persistent disease? I want to thank Dr. Alan Sipperstein, who has been our guest. We have been discussing the detection of thyroid cancer. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and you have been listening to a special future medicine segment on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to check out our website at www.reachmd.com which now features on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. Listen all month as ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals, as we feature a special series, Focus on Cancer.